Let's open up the words of 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be going through verses 1 through 8. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodebar. Then the king David sent and brought him of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodebar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I surely will show you the kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread from my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? We are talking about grace this morning, and we are talking about it from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I hope it is that you'll leave your Bible open, you'll be able to follow right along. Glad that you're here this morning. We do have a number of visitors and uh, would uh, remind members to make sure that you reach out and say hello to those and uh, that are around you and uh, let them know how glad we are that you're here and hope it is that you'll come back and be with us at every opportunity. To understand exactly what's going on here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, you have to understand the change in dynasty. You see, the first king of Israel was Saul and he was anointed king in 1 Samuel and Saul messed up royally, literally and figuratively. Saul, as the first king of Israel, uh, spared somebody that he was absolutely supposed to kill right about the middle of 1 Samuel in chapter 15. He spared a man by the name of Agag, who was the king, when God had told him, listen, you need to destroy the Amalekites. And from 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you can imagine a line, this is the line of Saul's kingship. You have a downward arrow that's facing until you reach the end of 1 Samuel where Saul and his sons are killed. And at the point where Saul messes up there in about 1 Samuel chapter 15, God takes a new king from a different line, not from the line of Saul, a man by the name of David. And all the while, while Saul's kingship and Saul's kingdom is going this way, what God purposes to do through David is to take his line and begin to point an up arrow. And so throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, you have this arc where Saul's kingdom or Saul's kingship is going down, but David is now ascending into the, the role of God's king. So it is that when you have 2 Samuel begin, you have the death of Saul and his, his heirs, his sons, who might sit on that throne, and you have David being crowned the king there about uh, chapter 3, where it is that he, uh, he goes up to heaven, chapter 2 rather, and he... Uh, he takes the throne of God for himself, or the throne of, of the kingdom of Israel. But the problem is, is that when you think about kingdoms and kingships, we don't normally have to face this, but you find a, well, let's put it this way. If you were going to be king, you wouldn't want any challenges to that kingship or to that throne. You wouldn't want anybody that would be left that would be of the political opposition that say, hey, this guy doesn't have the right to sit on this throne. 
And so it is, as a king, you would be very jealous for that throne, and you would be very zealous in order to try and eliminate any kind of political opposition that, that remains. What I want you to understand is David wasn't a king like that. David wasn't a king like that. Flip back just for a few pages to 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 3, you see what kind of king that David began to be there in, uh, in, in 2 Samuel, in his kingship. It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and between the house of David, but the house of David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. There were some still who were loyal to the throne of Saul. Abner being one who was Saul's chief commander, his military officer. Ish, or Ishbosheth, who was uh, uh, one of the descendants of Saul, had already been crowned as king of Israel. And so now you've got a rival to David's power. And as a king, you would find often that the kings would do everything in their power to eliminate the political opposition. And think about the reasons why David had to do that. David could have gone after like an attack dog after the descendants of Saul. Why? Because... Saul had openly tried to snuff out David's life on a number of occasions. Started about 1 Samuel chapter 18 and go throughout the rest of 1 Samuel and you'll see that David on a number of occasions had to flee for his life because Saul knew that he was going to be king after him and instead of him. Saul was openly hostile to David with regard to his words and with regard to his attitudes. And it is that David had no right to be loyal to the throne of Saul except for the fact that that's who he was. David had every right as the king to destroy every remnant and every heir of Saul, every man that was associated with Saul because it was a challenge to his power. But, but, and I appreciate this but because it speaks to something of the character of David and it speaks to something of the character of our God as we'll talk about here in just a moment. The Bible says that when David was anointed king over Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that God was looking for a man who was, you remember the phrase? I'm looking for a man who is after my own heart, says God. Did you ever think about the grace of God being seen through the life of David to the house of Saul. Because that's exactly what we're looking at here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David, who had every right to eliminate his political opposition and to snuff out every remnant of that old monarchy, that old kingdom of Saul, God's grace, brothers and sisters, is extended to those who do not deserve it, but those who desperately need it. I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 from this aspect of what we just talked about. And the definition of grace that we're going to be using for this lesson is this. Grace is simply favor owed, or favor bestowed rather, when wrath was owed. Favor bestowed, favor freely given, whenever it was, what was really deserving is wrath. And when you think about that with regard to the house of Saul, that's really what his house had warranted. Everything that Saul had done in, in, in being a king was, was to, it seems like he was angering God. And everything that he had done in, in murdering people and, and trying to advance his own purposes, there wasn't any reason why it was that David should have shown favor unto this household that had spent so much time trying to snuff out his life. 
Folks, God's grace is extended not to those who deserve it, but to those who desperately need it. And what I want us to understand that is from that, from 2 Samuel chapter 9 today, to realize that in vivid colors, in a really vivid picture, we have a picture of God's grace to us. We're talking about in this congregation, seeing Jesus in 2020, we want to be able to see his grace clearly, and sometimes it is looking at others and seeing his grace in their lives will help us to realize more about what we have. Go with me, please, as we take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. This is what we might call a rare grace. A rare grace. 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1 begins with David asking this question, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David seems like he's got just a little brief period of peace between trying to uh, hold on to that throne, between trying to, to, to put down uh, rebels that might challenge that throne, and also solidify and really add to the, the stability of his kingdom. And as he stops here on this occasion, he says, is there anybody that I can show kindness to who's left of this house of Saul? Kindness, favor, beauty, mercy, he does this, and he cites a reason for it. He says, for Jonathan's sake. Stop there just for a moment. For Jonathan's sake. What we have to understand is, David asked this question about who may have shown kindness for Jonathan's sake. And we have to back up to just a couple of places in order to understand what it was that he had told to Jonathan. There are two promises that David had made, as it was that Again, Saul's trajectory, when Saul was still alive, his life going down this way, and David's ascending to the throne. David was very, very close to the house of Saul. And you remember there on 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 17 through 22, that Saul was chasing after David. He was ready to kill him. And Saul, as it were, has found a cave, and he had to go use the restroom, as it were. And he went into the cave, and David and his men were hiding in there. And David takes the opportunity and cuts off a small piece of Saul's garment. And as Saul exits that cave, David holds it up and says, God delivered you into my hand. I could have killed your life, but I didn't. His conscience got the best of him in, in cutting off the garment of the king. And Saul made him promise on that occasion. He said, swear to me that you won't cut off my descendants after me. When you jump back a couple of pages further in 1 Samuel chapter 20, his great love for Saul's son, Jonathan. The kinship and the friendship that they enjoyed. Jonathan said, David, I know that you're going to be the next king. I know that God has rejected my father, Saul. And I know that it is that it's your, he's, you know, he, God's going to continue to allow your course of your life to ascend and uh, Saul's to descend. He says, I want you to promise me that you don't cut off your kindness from my house forever. And David promised. David made this vow on this occasion that he would not cut that off, but that he would show kindness. Folks, that's exactly what grace is. Grace is not based on somebody's moral goodness. It's not based upon them uh, meriting something in the eyes of the person that does it, but it's upon a willingness to bless and to show kindness even to the undeserving and the undesirable. It's based upon, well, in our case, and in this case, a promise. God knew how undesirable we would be. God knew how dirty with sin we would be. And he promised, 
he swore by himself to our father Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 22, and God swore by himself because he couldn't swear by anybody greater. God promised that it was that he would bring about the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 6. In a time where it was that all we were due was wrath. God looked at us and he said, who can I show kindness to? Favor, beauty, mercy. Isn't that rare? Isn't that a rare grace? You encounter people on a day-to-day basis. When was the last time that you encountered somebody that wanted to show grace to somebody just because they love the Lord? When was it that somebody said, you know what, I want to show kindness to you just because? Because of it, 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 because I just feel like I need to. When was the last time you had somebody that just opened up, you knocked on their door and opened it up and said, I want to give you this great favor? See, people don't do that, usually. And especially when you have somebody like the house of Saul that had been so antagonistic towards David and that looked at him and and wanted to destroy him and wanted to destroy his kingship to be able to say, today have David turn around and say, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I may be able to show kindness to? Who needs grace? Who needs God's grace? It's a rare grace. But I want you to understand this secondly, that this is a rich grace. A rich grace. As David looks around and sees, tries to find, is there anybody still left in the house of Saul? He calls a former servant of Saul who is uh, Ziba. And he says, Ziba, is there anybody that I can show kindness to in the house of Saul? And Ziba says, there is a son of Jonathan who's still alive. At the end of verse 3, you note how he is known. This man by the name of Mephibosheth is lame in his feet. Why is that? Jump back just a couple of pages to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. When Saul and when this young man's father, Jonathan, were killed by the Philistines, when they were killed by the Philistines, now it is that the house of Saul is frightened. They're scared beyond belief. They're thinking, oh no, David is going to be the next king and he's going to come after us. And so it is this little servant that Saul picks up Mephibosheth and she begins to run and she drops him for whatever reason so that he becomes lame in both feet. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. He fell and became lame. In fact, the name Mephibosheth simply means a barren place. A barren place. And he is, throughout the context and scripture, known for his infirmity. With his name, Mephibosheth, he's lame in his feet. You know Mephibosheth down there in that house, he's lame in his feet. Well, call Mephibosheth who is lame in his feet. Come, let him, let him come here, he's lame in his feet. Can you imagine having something like that attached to your name, being known for a physical infirmity? And that's what his name means barren place, but he was a forgotten son. I appreciate the fact that David was not looking for a person with an infirmity or somebody that was physically a perfect specimen, as it were. David was simply looking for somebody to whom he could show kindness. And as Ziba calls Mephibosheth and he comes and he falls down before the king, note what David says, beginning of verse 7, of what he's going to receive. 
what he's going to receive. He's going to receive, verse 13, a new home. He's going to receive, verse 7, an inheritance. He's going to give him all the slam that was Saul. He gave him an honored place. Come, Mephibosheth, come and sit down at David's table. Come and sit down at the king's table. He gave him a perpetual blessing. You come and you live here. You sit in my table continually. You continue to, 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 to feast at the king's table again and again and again. He gave him a new life. Can you imagine Mephibosheth's life living in the household of somebody, being what he might consider to be a burden to somebody, staying there with his lame feet and somebody, well, you got to take care of Mephibosheth, got to think about him. But it wasn't just a matter of kindness. It was a matter of a rich kindness. It was a matter of bestowing God's grace upon this man to the point where it is that he didn't have to worry about where it was that he was going to get his next meal. He didn't have to worry about where it was that he was going to sit at the table because David said, you come and sit at my table. He gave him a gracious covering. I appreciate this because it says that Mephibosheth was not allowed to lay down at the foot of David's table. But three times in our context, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, it says, you will sit at my table. And every time, can you imagine Mephibosheth sitting there and having a servant push in the chair for him? He sat there and he was, well, as David would say, just like one of my sons. Just like one of my sons. He was lame in both feet, but see, uh, both feet, but sitting at the king's table. And every time he sat there, it was a reminder that his weaknesses, his infirmities, were covered over. Folks, again, please don't miss the point. It wasn't about who was worthy of the house of Saul. It wasn't about uh, who who had merited uh, David's favor of the house of Saul. It is that Saul chose to give this kindness to somebody that was still living. It was about showing a grace based upon a promise made. It was about showing favor and bestowing that favor whenever really what it was was wrath being owed. And so the question becomes, how do we show grace in our lives? How do we show grace in our own lives? And I think when we begin to look at this episode of how God took this or how David took this unworthy, wretched, lame man, and David took him and made him a person who had worth and honor and blessing and a covering to where he sat at the king's table. If we can't see something of ourselves, then we're not looking. Favor bestowed when wrath was owed. Because the truth of the matter and in making application is, brothers and sisters, we were Mephibosheth. We were Mephibosheth you begin to truly appreciate the grace of God in your life. When it is that you realize and recognize the helpless, destitute, and pitiful state that we were in. I asked Chandler to end with chapter 9 and verse 8. Because you understand something of Mephibosheth's mindset whenever he came before the king and he falls down prostrate. That is, his face is on the ground. And he says, who am I that you're going to look at me, this dead dog? Why is it that you're extending this favor to me? I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. I find a stark parallel to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, where he talks about while we were still without strength, like Mephibosheth, 
while we were still ungodly, while we were still enemies like Mephibosheth, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We were Mephibosheth. But I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, we are Mephibosheth. As we sit continually at the king's table, the lameness of Mephibosheth's feet were covered. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell if you came into David's dining hall seeing all of those people that were there, what a grand assembly that must have been, sitting there and feasting and eating, you couldn't look and say, aha, I see this guy, he's got lameness in his feet. Aha, I see him and I see that he's not worthy to be there. Every time he sat at the king's table, his infirmity was covered. His lameness was not seen. And what God did for us in taking me and taking you and covering over our sin and making us a place where we could sit with Him, sitting with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2, you He made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's raised us up. He's given us a place where it is, brothers and sisters, we sit at his table and our sins are covered. Let me drop this off before we leave. God forbid that any one of us begin to think, I deserve this. Can you imagine through the course of time, Mephibosheth having that kind of attitude? Beginning to look at himself and begin to look down on his nose at other people. And beginning to say, is this all we're eating today? David, are you kidding me? When are you going to bring out the good stuff? Oh, I've got a place at the king's table continually. Oh, you don't have that, do you? But can you imagine a man who knew his pitiful state? Who knew there was nothing that he had done to deserve it? And every single time he had a reminder of that, he was grateful. When we come before God, do we come with a grateful heart, with an attitude that says, thank you, God, so much that you have given me, like Mephibosheth, an inheritance, a new name, a new title, a perpetual blessing, a continual satisfaction to sit there and have and know that what, what we have is, 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 is enough to sustain us and to keep us do we have a gratitude in our hearts that says, thank you, God, so much for everything that you've done. Thank you, God, for your grace because I was owed wrath and you bestowed favor. We are Mephibosheth. I want you to understand this. We're also Zeba. We didn't talk much about Zeba in this account, but Zeba, servant of the house of Saul, and David, looking at him, calls him and says, is there anybody that I can show grace to? Has God given us a charge like that? To say, here's my grace, just ready, just waiting. I'm ready to bestow goodwill and favor and something that's going to be a blessing to somebody else that's going to change their life forever. Can you think of anybody like that? 
Can you think of anybody that's out there that's, that's dirty, that's, that's broken, that's pitiful, that's in the state, that's helpless? Can you think about anybody like that that needs God's grace more than anything else? Ziba did. Surely you realize, brothers and sisters, that we have people that we come in contact with every single day that have an opportunity to sit at the king's table. But we walk by them, we talk to them about everything but. We spend time sitting down with them and chatting about the weather and who they think is going to win the Super Bowl and all sorts of different everyday conversations. And that person stays there in that wretched, pitiful, miserable state under threat of the wrath of God. And we never issue an invitation to say, come, experience the grace of God. Know the fact that He's able to change your life and give you a place that you don't deserve, but that you'll appreciate. Can you think of anybody like that? We are Zeba. We are David. We are David. Favor bestowed when wrath was owed. What God wants us to do Church, what God wants us to be is like David was, a man or woman after his own heart, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. What does that mean? Who can I show favor, grace, mercy, kindness to? Is there anybody that I can behave that way with? You know, the world, the more barren that the world becomes, the more it ought to be that people ought to see the grace of God in us and to be drawn to what makes us different. I can't imagine another king like David him being so gracious that he's just with all of his power, with all of his responsibilities of a kingdom, uh, looking out and saying, all right, I've got this kindness, I've got this favor I want to show, and I want to give it to somebody that so needs it. Not deserving, but needs it. Do you think me showing that kind of grace, kindness, favor, beauty would transform the way that is that I talk to that waiter or waitress? Do you think that grace would change the way I interact with my family? Who can I show kindness to? I can show kindness to my wife. I can show kindness to my children. I cannot just blow up and, and, and leave them in the dust and, and in the trail and just unload everything that I have on them? Do you think it would change the way it is that we deal with the people that we work with and that we go to school with and that we interact with? Is that going to change us because, folks, we're going to be people after God's own heart. It's not a matter of James and John saying, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from to destroy these people? And Jesus saying... Guys, you don't know what spirit you're of. I want you to bestow grace, favor, even though it is these people may be deserving of wrath. I don't know of an occasion where it is that I can't let my speech be seasoned with grace. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. I've got to guard my tongue and let the law of grace come out. I have to think about it and growing in grace. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Singing with grace, thankfulness. 
having grace in my, in my life and, and my grace in my heart. Hearing about the word of his grace, we spend time together so that we can know to be more gracious. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Standing in grace every day. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Abounding in his grace. 2 Corinthians 9, and verse 8. Enjoying the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 7. And sharing his grace. What makes me different from every other person that's going to come down the pike and that lady that's, that so needs to hear something kind who's there in the grocery store, in the department store, that's sitting with you at lunch? It ought to be, church, that we are people who are known by our grace because we're people that have experienced His grace. I don't know if you, I hope you did, paid attention to the song that David sang just a few moments ago before we began this lesson. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And I understand that I'm not a worm, but at the same time, I can have the same kind of mind as Ms. Fibbishep looking here and saying, why are you trying to treat me like this, a dead dog like I am, an unworthy person? Why would you do that? Metaphorically, it makes sense. But what God wants more than anything else is for you in your life to be transformed by that grace. Drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. What God wants more than anything else is for us to take that grace, that favor that's been bestowed when wrath was owed, and to let it transform your life where you can give yourself away to something so fully, something so complete, something that can transform you from the inside out and to become Christ's and Christ alone as messengers of His grace because we've been recipients of His grace. But that starts with us looking at the grace of God that brings salvation, which has appeared unto all men like we talked about in our Bible class this morning, Second, or excuse me, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This grace that tells me I need to repent, change my mind and my heart with regard to the ways that I've been living, the ways that I've been thinking. I imagine Mephibosheth probably had some of this kind of anti-David sentimentality or mentality about him. Part of that is changing your mind with regard to who it is that you think is your enemy. It's not. God is the one who is going to bless your life. And I've got to start thinking His way if I'm going to be and to sit at His table. It is that I look at the grace of God that brings salvation that's appeared in the form of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. God gave the perfect to save the flaw. God gave the perfect to save the imperfect, the enemies, the ungodly, the sinners, the ones that were without strength, just like Mephibosheth. And it is only through Jesus Christ that you can come to know Him. It is through confession of His name and saying, I want Jesus Christ. I'm going to live for Him every single day. And I'm going to make my life sitting at His table and being recipient of His grace. It is through being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. 
It is through New Testament water baptism that we contact the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, where it is that we are buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, given a new home, given a perpetual blessing like Mephibosheth. If you don't have that this morning, you can. If you need that this morning, it stands available. As we, as messengers of God's grace, like David, like Ziba, we say... You don't have to live with the sin that you've got. You don't have to live with the infirmity, the difficulty that you've got. But it involves coming to Him. It involves recognizing that He's bestowed grace when you were owed wrath. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.